Um, Jason Parham, a senior writer at Wired, an editor, publisher of Spook, Man About Town, Internet Goon, all the good things. <laughs> Internet Goon is a title I would desperately love to have. I, nobody, nobody's afraid of me. <laughs> I mean, nobody's afraid of me either, but, you know, it's the internet. You can make up things. <laughs> Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Brittany. And this is For Colored Nerds. The weekly show where we peel back the layers of Black culture that we rarely discuss in mixed company. And today, we go deep into the world of Black digital creators with a little help from writer Jason Parham of Wired. We're dissecting the heart and significance of Black Twitter, TikTok, and OnlyFans. That's coming up. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Technically, even though this is a reboot, technically you have been on the show before. You were on For Colored Nerds <laughs> in March of 2017. Um, and actually, your reappearance right now makes you not just a friend of the show, but officially our very first repeat guest ever. <laughs> yes, let's go. Let's do it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Last time we talked to you in 2017 on the show, um, we talked to you about your time at, I guess, what is now called old Gawker, Gawker 1.0, yeah. because there's like a new Gawker. Um, we talked to you about your editing work at The Fader, which is where you were working when we talked to you in 2017. Um, we talked about your love of solo travel and also how you take care of yourself as a Black person who is very online. <laughs> um, but that was four years ago. So talk to us about what you've been up to since then and what you're doing now. I think for, you know, a lot of those things, many of those things are still the same. Um, Obviously, before the world shut down, I was doing a lot of solo travel, Spain, London, um, Miami, of course. <laughs> um, but also, you know, continuing to like take care of myself, you know, work out, moisturize, um, stay off the Internet when I'm not, you know, working and just try to like mind my business because it keeps you young. I always try to mind my business. It's the best. <laughs> it's the best. It's absolutely it's the best. It keeps you youthful, man. It keeps you youthful. <laughs> I weirdly got off Instagram in that time. So I'm no longer on Instagram. Mm. And then I, so I got off officially and then I got back on secretly through like a Finsta account, which I'm having a lot of fun with. I don't use anything enough to really be able to justify kind of having a Finsta. Cause like following me in two <laughs> places, like why? What do you, what are you, there's no, <laughs> it's not really any added value. But, uh, but the Finsta movement is popping because you really get to know like, you know, people, I feel like people still play it safe on the close friends list. Yeah. But like, you be seeing some stuff on Finstas. It was almost like the uh, like Twitter. Yeah, Fleetnik, Fleetnik, yes, Yo, Fleetnik. Fleetnik was <laughs> insane. I'm not talking about that, but I'm just talking about like actual people's actual lives and being able to see like a deeper perspective than what, you know, the sanitized stuff we typically see in stories. Um, so shout out to your Finsta. So you, you mentioned you're a senior writer at Wired and like in your time at Wired, you've been, you've been working, you know, you've covered everything uh, from the unique appeal of the Oprah Winfrey network to the emergence of OnlyFans, you know, with a critical, but also kind of loving eye, which, you know, in the early days, that was not how people was really checking, checking for it. It's true. Uh, and your bio on Wired says that you cover pop culture, but like, I feel like your work is just honestly so much more than that. So like, if you really had to like describe like your current beat and like what typically interests you like most within that, how would you describe it? I mean, I think it's been the same for all of my professional career, what I've tried to do or what I've, you know, strive to do in my writing, my professional writing, um, is really just cover Black communities um, in all the ways that I can. Um, and bring visibility to uh, sort of our richness and our plurality online and in real life. And so, you know, working at Wired, that deals with a lot of different internet communities, a lot of subcultures on the internet. I kind of like 
try to put a foot towards that as best as I can, which is why maybe you see something like the oral history of, you know, Black Twitter, or you mm-hmm. see stuff, you know, nobody has ever written about Zeus Network on Wired, and then I was like, you know, I like Zeus Network, let me write about <laughs> Zeus Network, right? So it's like, things like that where I'm bringing sort of like care and thought and like love to like our communities that people would sometimes overlook. That's how I would broadly describe it. I mean, I obviously write about other things. There's OnlyFans, there's the Oprah Winfrey Network. There's certain things I just have to cover because it's pop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really, my heart is towards like covering things that are really important to us as a community that would otherwise go overlooked. Let's talk about more about that. Obviously, you know, like we've committed ourselves to, you know, observing and commentating on Blackness and, and, and Black culture. Uh, but I'm curious, like, what are the things, you know, whether it be like personally or professionally, that really have made you consistently carve out this niche for yourself? I mean, at the very basic fundamental level, it's just like, I love us, right? Like, I love yeah. us mm-hmm. and our people. Um, and I think our genius needs to be, you know, shown and highlighted and spotlighted in any way and all ways that it can. But I think Wired, too, like, not that Wired wasn't doing this before I got there, but there weren't a lot of eyes on Black internet communities or subcultures outside of like the major movements of maybe like Black Lives Matter or something like that, right? So I I want to always dig deeper, give a richer story, a fuller story, or more whole story in that way. I mean, and for what's worth, you know, like Zeus Network deserves, you know, like... (laughs) like, (laughs) That is... (laughs) Zeus Network, you got Eric's number with that. That is Eric's jam. Anytime, anytime I can write about Jocelyn Hernandez is a good time, yeah. <laughs> uh, she is ama- fascinating. Fascinating. One of the most fascinating people of our time. You could be, I think you could be a Black woman in her mold. I think it was, it was a little easier to do that, like within hip-hop and music. But branching out into TV and reality, she felt like a, very much a bridge kind of for that like type of personality and really kind of pushing through. Because I feel like before then, the most popular kind of reality stars were very much the more polished. Like uh, It's interesting to call Real Housewives a little more polished. But for, for the most part, it, you know, no, they yeah. are. Compared to Zeus, yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, compared to Zeus. But even compared to other reality TV show like franchises, those women typically have money or at least have the means to pretend and fool p- other people with money into thinking that they have money. Yeah. Jocelyn reminds me of like the cousins, you know what I'm saying? Who are like, they came into Somalia and they are out here. They like, we, you know, we're killing it now. And like, we're just taking over. And it's, it's, it's been, it's been, it's been cool to see. It's been cool to see. One of the reasons why we love your work so much is because you've been really consistent in giving the things that we actually care about and the things that black people or the average person interacts with the most. You've always treated those topics with really like utmost seriousness. And like something else that I think that you do really well with your work, especially your work at Wired, is you find ways to like thoroughly examine new platforms early, sometimes like first uh, for like in the mainstream realm. And you kind of almost predict like their eventual rise or their eventual conflict. And I think you really nailed that with your first piece about OnlyFans. Um, when, when influencers, it was called when influencers mm. switch platforms and bear it all, which was published back in 2019. And you really nailed the appeal of the app and looked into the trend of influencers from other platforms, um, or from other media moving into a new income stream and not just tapping into a new income stream or even tapping into a new type of content, but like adding another dimension to their appeal. And they were doing it on OnlyFans, like You did that, though, like you were covering OnlyFans like a year before it became part of the popular lexicon. I vividly remember being at dinner in 2018 Mm -hmm. and somebody made a joke about OnlyFans. And I was like, what are you talking about? What is what is this? Mm -hmm. And then I saw like a meme about it a few months later on Instagram. And I was like, I have to look into this. Um, And it kind of just snowballed from there. Aside from maybe TikTok and a few other platforms, I think it's definitely one of the more radical revolutionary platforms of this time. It's definitely, I feel like, one of the most radical platforms, but almost in spite of itself. It's very much as a result of the communities that exist like on the platform. It felt interesting to have this kind of platform is set up and their, the initial framing of their offering is so specific. And then it becomes most popular for this alternative purpose. Like I think even with you know like Tumblr, there was a, a heavy kind of uh, relationship between Tumblr and even like the uh, sex work community. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, in addition to just like, obviously there's been a lot of talk about porn on Tumblr and things like that. But I thought what was interesting is like, you know, I feel like uh, 
sex workers and black sex, work, sex workers specifically, like really said like, no, this is how we're using it. And actually this is how it's successful. And I feel like uh, they were kind of making that claim before even obviously the pandemic pushed everybody in there to bear that for the rest of the world. And I'm curious, it's like, what, what are the things you look for when assessing like, okay, where is this going to go? What are the things you look for to kind of understand what might be coming next? Oh, that's tough. Yeah. I think with OnlyFans, I was really interested because I think we talk about sex work in very specific ways online. Typically, we say, you know, we have professional sex workers and people have been in the industry doing this for a long time. But what was interesting for me about OnlyFans was that I was seeing a lot of influencers on Instagram migrate to OnlyFans. And as Brittany says, you know, find this extra revenue stream or what have you to sort of build their brand out in a new way that we had really never seen before. Right. Mm-hmm. So like Instagram in a lot of ways is very PG. And now you're seeing your favorite influencer on OnlyFans, like butt naked. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. it was like. It's, it, it's, it's wild in that sense that people kind of like, it's like the last, you know, it is breaking the, you know, it's the last taboo almost in a sense, right? It's like, we're, we're doing away with everything because this is just fandom now and this is how we live and I need to build my brand around, you know, this 360 idea of I need to be on every platform and even if that includes OnlyFans. So it really was this like huge migration that I saw happening. I was like, I need to dig into this. I didn't know what exactly what I was going to find. I didn't at the outset realize how big it was going to be. Yeah. I, I wanted to show love to it because I I think sex work gets a, a really bad rap, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think I was really interested in giving, uh, putting a lot of love and care into it because I was like, this really is a space that's, you know, democratizing sex work for a lot of people um, that are trying to get into a space that is sometimes not safe for them, right? And so OnlyFans allows people to get online and, you know, build a life for themselves, create revenue in a very safe, affirming place. Mm-hmm. And it, I think it's radical in that sense, right? Right. It's not just saying you need to be, you know, have abs and look like a Barbie doll and be, you know, do studio porn. It's like anybody can get in this space because everybody's horny and there's everybody has like a fetish or a kink and everybody can eat, right? You know, yeah. basically is what OnlyFans was. <laughs> um, and so I think that was really interesting to me because it wasn't just a space for white sex workers anymore. It was saying, you know, mm-hmm. everybody can come on the platform and do what you need to do and make this money. It's also interesting too, just like to see how how that has exposed like so many other kind of issues. So OnlyFans, not too many months back, had kind of flirted with like banning porn and kind of banning the sex work that was happening regularly and that the platform was most known for. Mm. Um, And it was interesting to see kind of an outpouring of so many people, uh, specifically so many men, also kind of happy about that. But it was interesting to me with OnlyFans, there's just so many different types of people and so many different types of women and sex workers and, you know, and, and female identifying people uh, on there who were just kind of getting attacked by like the broad base of just like men. Coming back to your earlier point, just like sex work is kind of demonized and stigmatized and like obviously it's criminalized as well. Uh, and it was just interesting in contrast to like, you know, when OnlyFans was kind of popping at its height, you know, it felt like everybody kind of let that guard down for a little bit. And then mm. it was like when when the money came up, you know, we started to kind of get a peek behind the curtain of how people really felt about just how big, you know, uh, sex workers on the platform got. I mean, I do think in a lot of ways sex workers gaining all this fame and becoming sort of the new micro-influencers in a way rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Um, but I think a lot of that hate and a lot of that vitriol comes from the people at the top. Timothy Stokely, the guy who created the website um, and the platform in 2016, you know, he had been in the cam world for a really long time. Yeah. And, you know, he came across this idea where he was like, you know, you know, influencers are the new celebrities. And, you know, he came up with the idea of OnlyFans and it started as a sex work platform. It's weird because it started with sex work, but he doesn't necessarily want it to be known for sex work anymore. And I think there's this sort of like tension or friction that's happening now on the platform where it's like the guys at the top that, you know, own the space, you know, Tim Stokely and all of them saying, Hey, we have sex work, but we don't want to be defined for it. But the thing that has made the platform so, you know, astronomically popular are the sex workers, the people putting in the labor and the work day in and day out that's drawing people to to the platform. And it's making it, you know, it's making it less taboo. It's it's saying, you know, this is a good thing. This is okay. It's also in a way affirming people who are coming to the platform later and say, you know, celebrities saying, hey, I have an OnlyFans, follow me. But it's not really um, 
giving, as they say, it's not really giving what it should give, right? So it's, it's you know, you have people <laughs> like Chris Brown or people like Bella Thorne was like, I have an OnlyFans, please join. And she made like a million dollars in a day, but it's like she really wasn't promising what, you know, people thought she was going to show on there. Because again, OnlyFans being known as a sex work platform, which is good in and of itself. There's nothing wrong with that, right? And I yeah. think that's the problem that people misunderstand. It's like, it's okay. This is a good thing. It can just be this. It doesn't have to be a platform for all types of other fandom, which is also okay. But I mean, let's not sort of take away the heart of what this thing is. You know, it's. I'm glad you brought up what the heart of this thing is. And also just like the approach that you wanted to take um, in writing this, like you can feel the love when you read it, but there's one specific quote that you said toward the beginning of the piece um, where you talk about like, you know, after that dinner that you had with a friend in 2018, where you learned about OnlyFans, you decided to sign up for the platform. For research. <laughs> for research. Research, pur- research purposes. Yeah. Only, all, we're only. all professionals here. Yeah. All, profession- all professionals. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you said that the reason that I couldn't look away was not just about being turned on. The more I watched these influencers, the more I felt drawn to them as people. I thought that was so interesting because, you know, as we've been talking about sex work and how even some people who are big participators on the platform who are technically sharing sexual content, like they don't want to think of themselves as engaging in sex sex work or like, you know, Stokely, the, you know, the guy who created the, the app, he doesn't want it to necessarily be thought of as an app that is trading in sex. I think, you know, that stigma comes from the idea that sex work is inherently dehumanizing. But it's interesting because you had this very human emotional reaction. Like it was like beyond finding, you know, the people that you were seeing on the app attractive, beyond finding the content itself giving you some sort of visceral reaction, let's say. You had like kind of the opposite, (laughs) like these people were even more deeply humanized to you the more you engage in their content. And it kind of runs counter to like the fear that a lot of people have when engaging with the platform or putting their content on the platform. It felt like you were getting to the most human element of something that is very digital and commercial and controversial. You like just were engaging with it as like a person, but also as if it was this living, breathing thing. Talk to me about how you got to sort of like the nut of the humanity in OnlyFans yeah, 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 and completely. why you wanted to share that part of, of, of your reaction. I think it's partly the way, you know, we are in it. We live in an image first culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the best places that there's proof of that is, I think the best sort of social marketplace for that is Instagram, right? And Instagram, by the time OnlyFans comes out, has almost been out 10 years. And so Instagram in this time has transitioned into this sort of manicured paradise where everybody wants to sort of show the perfect lifestyle, Mm. at least the highest performing creators on Instagram. This is, you know, beauty sales, image sales, things that are beautiful do very, very well on the platform, right? But they also don't feel as real. They feel fake. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, creators like to say they're giving you an inside look at their lives through their stories or their posts, but it really isn't who they are truly, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have something like OnlyFans that comes out that's so counter to everything that we know about specific influencers, right? Um, Transitioning to this new platform and we're seeing them, we're seeing creators transition to this platform and migrate and doing things that we've never seen them do before, right? And so I think it was really fascinating to me in that sense where it's like, you know, stripped down and naked it's like this is the last you have nothing else to hide at this point it's almost like a one-to-one connection now it's it's way more human it feels way more real Mm. and for all the flack i think that OnlyFans gets now for you know you have creators on there who are doing gay for pay stuff you have a lot of people doing cosplay performing roles and i think the platform has in some ways gotten a little full of itself um people trying to capitalize just on the money that they can make the only fans but in the early days it felt so real it felt very sort of authentic in a way that i think was really mind-blowing for me that i just had never seen something like this before um and i think that it was that one-to-one personal connection because people really were just trying to figure it out yeah it was it's interesting i mean for what it's worth i've i've I've, you know subscribed to an only fans or two in my in my um Past. Uh, oh, is that right? Past I was also aware. for research research purposes. <laughs> not gonna, not going to advertise anybody today, but, uh, but you know, there's some people out there doing good work. 
and I think the thing that I think is interesting about it too, like is like even more so than Instagram, I feel like there's a level of, for lack of a better word, like touch um, that like ex- extends there where, you know, creators are really actually like, there's an intimacy to it that I think also to your point does not exist on mm-hmm. Instagram, you know, and mm-hmm. even I feel like happens in a much more like aggressive vitriolic way on on platforms like Twitter. Mm. You know, it was just like, nah, on here, folks are talking. Now, mind you, we're talking about, you know, uh, you know, yams and things like that. But uh <laughs> but you know, but there's there's like genuine kind of like community building, you know, uh, like happening there. And I, I think that was also something I was a bit surprised by. But it, it makes sense if you think about the intimacy that exists maybe within sex work writ large. But I just never yeah. expected it in a digital space because of what we're, what we're used to. Right. So I think the last barrier for us online, for things online, is vulnerability. And I think a lot of things people don't mm. talk about is how vulnerable a platform OnlyFans is. Creators are on there making themselves in a way that we we've never seen before, right? Mm. And so I think there's this there's this this sense of vulnerability that we see on it that we don't see on Twitter, that we don't see on Facebook, that we don't see on Instagram or Snapchat. Um, that's really sort of revolutionary in a way. That is so deep <laughs> about yeah, vulnerability like, being like it's the, the last final barrier. Yeah, it's the last. Barrier. That's that's the only thing that people keep up like. Instagram is great. I enjoy it. Twitter is obviously I uh, adore Twitter, but like OnlyFans is a very vulnerable, vulnerable place, right? Um, especially in the early days, people were just you know out there trying to really figure it out and saying, "Hey, mm-hmm. this is me. This is what I want to do. I'm trying to make money, but this is I'm offering myself to you. I'm literally yeah. offering my physical self to you. Yeah. What do you want, right? In in a in a very intimate way, right? Mm-hmm. Um. It's really, it's really radical. It's radical in a very good way when I say that. Radical in a very, very deeply good way. Yeah. Some of the elements that make OnlyFans so radical also exist in other digital spaces. Coming up after the break, we will dig into the internet's other darling, TikTok. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease and a whole lot of love, you transform 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. That vulnerability that you're talking about from OnlyFans is um, a lot of why I love TikTok. And like, I didn't get into TikTok before last year. I think maybe it's been a year now that I've actually been on the platform. I do not post anything. If you find me, you want to follow me, I won't let you. There's nothing to see. I am only on there consuming content. I, I can't tell if that's just like bad internet etiquette or if I'm just tired of making stuff all of the time. So I just want to kind of like just just completely relax and consume something. But TikTok for me has been a place of like, I don't know, like I don't like to your point, Instagram is almost like too perfect. I go on TikTok because I love seeing people being like laying in the bed, kind of like talking straight to camera or like they just, you know, they show they want to show people how they're making like, I don't know. The best way they, they they learned how to fry chicken or whatever it is that people want to do. Um, that to me has been kind of like a sacred space. And of course, it's a space that you covered before um, it became, I think, as big as it has become um, since the beginning of the pandemic. So I think you do a really good job of like nailing the intersection of like digital media slash digital subcultures and black culture. And um, one of the pieces that you also like where you also were covering a platform before a major conflict on that platform kind of like came uh, to light within the past year was called TikTok and the evolution of digital blackface. I don't want to call you Negro Damas. That feels disrespectful. <laughs> but you have like a way like of identifying when like when something's happening on a specific platform and, and getting into it. Talk to us about the TikTok and digital blackface piece and what prompted you to write it. Because I mean, in that piece, you focus on like a blackout day where black TikTok creators organized basically against mistreatment on the platform. 
And, you know, got into different Black creators' concerns. But, like, this is all something that occurred before the most recent Black TikToker, I guess, quote-unquote, boycott. So talk to us Mm -hmm. about, like, what made you want to dig into that way back in 2020, either pre-pandemic or at the beginning of it. This thing sometimes happens on the internet where you'll see something happening on another platform, but it's not specific to that platform. Mm -hmm. So there was this one guy that I followed on Twitter who was also huge on TikTok, but he was always complaining about TikTok on Twitter. And he was saying how a lot of what Black creators were, you know, posting to the platform, were publishing, were creating, was being appropriated by non-Black creators. Mm. And he was constantly, constantly tweeting about this. And so, you know, I was like, let me just hit him up and see what's happening. Um, and I mean, you know, we live in America, so appropriation is not like, it's nothing new, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's basically the air, it's the air we breathe. If you're a person of color in America, you are, your culture is being appropriated in some way by a white person. But I think it was very specific what was happening to TikTok. It was, it was happening so fast and so frequently that it just, I had to look into it. Um, and I think what sort of compelled me to sort of take that, again, when I was to my earlier point and saying how like, I'm driven by covering Black communities in all ways that I can. Mm -hmm. And so this was one way for me to sort of shine a spotlight on what was happening to us and sort of lending a story to that in a way that's saying, hey, look at the things and the genius that we're creating and look at how it's being robbed from us. Look at look at this cultural theft that's happening on the internet, on what people call the most innovative platform of the generation. Look at how our, our labor is being stolen from us. So much of, I think, what people have experienced on TikTok, you know, it feels familiar to, like, what people experience a little bit on, like, Vine and what people still experience on Twitter mm-hmm. and Instagram. It happens, you know, a little bit of everywhere. And so, yeah, I guess I'm curious as you talk to folks, like, what is the sense of, like, how much can actually be changed this time? And, like, how you kind of build that trust in communicating with that group? I mean, it was, it was tough. I think, you know, Black creators were certainly upset and angry. A lot of them were confused. A lot of them were wondering why the platform itself and TikTok was essentially not doing anything to say, hey, you know, y- your content is being stolen. We need to somehow stop this. For all the PR that, you know, quotes that they gave me, they really didn't do anything to help the creators until the very end. Um, after, you know, all this complaining and saying, hey, all these dance challenges that we're creating are being diluted and stolen and taken. And, you know, mm-hmm. you know, white girls are now on Jimmy Fallon when it should be us. And it's like people were just really upset and wanted to tell their story. And so, again, sometimes I look at being a journalist and as a writer, as being on the front lines of history, as being the first document of history. Right. Mm. And so I really wanted to document what was happening for the sake of just documenting the sort of struggle that these creators were going through. Whether it got resolved or not, it was important for me to say, hey, this was happening. People, again, people just always, you know, wanted to tell their story. And I think it's my job there to not only listen, but sort of discern the story in the best and most careful way possible. I think my my timing was also sort of like serendipitous in a way Mm -hmm. too, where it's like, you know, everything was locked down. This was like the early days of the pandemic when nobody was going outside. So we were all looking for ways to commune and create online, right? Yeah. I think this is partly why TikTok and OnlyFans became so popular because people could do it from the safety of their homes, right? Yeah. But I also think what helped me in my reporting of the TikTok story was that I was essentially talking to a lot of young people, teens and early 20-year-olds, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's like, they're just eager to talk and tell their stories. So it definitely helped in, and I think, sort of building that trust with um, my sources. Because at the end of the day, it's like, if we don't tell our stories, who's going to tell them, right? You are absolutely, absolutely right. You know, I feel like you really got to like the soul of OnlyFans. (laughs) And so I'm kind of wondering, like... I wonder, I wonder, like, what do you see, like, is, like, the essence of TikTok? Like, what's the soul of TikTok? I think what makes TikTok so sort of radical in a way is that it allows creators to embody what they're creating in a 3D way. It's sort of this hyper-realness, if you will, right? And so I think that's why in reporting the story, some of the biggest offenses I was seeing was a lot of non-white creators embodying sort of the rhythms and the gestures of housewives. Or why you saw a lot of like teenagers in school pretending to be the hot Cheeto girl. You know, people can embody and create in a way that they can't on Facebook, that they can't on Twitter that they can't on Snapchat. 
TikTok essentially it sort of gives them the suite of editing tools that a director could use, you know, creating a film, right? Mm. And so they're able to fashion all these sorts of identities onto themselves and become whoever they want, which in some instances is really amazing, but in others can be really dangerous and slippery. I think it, it speaks to also to kind of what I appreciate about TikTok the most. To me, the irreverence is much more um, impactful because of all the different tools. Like to your point, you know, like on Twitter, you you can get somebody responding to your tweet. It might be a white person responding with a real housewives, you know, Jeff, <laughs> right. or like, you know, like Nini, like, oh, the ghetto, you know. Or but yeah. on TikTok, they're actually mimicking her gestures. They're, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a it's a really it's a double-edged sword. When you're consuming it from black creators, you're like, man, it's really one, you get me, you understand the fucking assignment. <laughs> like, you know, you like, wow, yeah. you know, but then yeah. when you see it with white creators, it's it's interesting just how much comfort there is with embodying something you have yeah. no understanding of. And that's something that doesn't quite happen as clearly on Twitter. It's the comfort, I think, aspect of it, right? You're, they're so comfortable doing it where it's like, nah, bro, this is not yours, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, the whole thing about TikTok is that you can basically, if someone creates audio from an original video, if they create some original audio from a video that they post, other people can basically replicate that. They can make their own videos. And I've seen ways that non-Black people have kind of like engaged in maybe what is technically digital Blackface, but feels mm-hmm. a little bit more like celebrity impersonation. Whereas like, to me, it gets especially nefarious and just outright kind of like way more wrong when you take an average Black person on TikTok who's gone viral and they have some original audio. And then you see non-Black people start to creep in and want to do impressions, I suppose, or want to mimic or really adopt the mannerisms, the speech, um, or even like the look of like a regular person. I love TikTok for everything I've been able to learn from it, but like in the democratization, I think in that sense is good, but also like the thing that comes with that is that an average black person who says something funny or does something interesting can become a costume for, for, you know, for a lot of non-Black users. I mean, that's the sort of the, the genius and the danger of the platform, right? It's built off appropriation. It's built off something that somebody else already created. And people are constantly building on top of that. And not only that, but it's like the platform engenders competition. Yeah. One person does it, then another person sees it, then it just snowballs mm. into this thing where everybody wants to do it, which is why it's very easy for things to go viral on TikTok, which is why people have gravitated towards it in a way that they have in other platforms, because it's very easy to go viral and make a name for yourself on there. But so you have all these things competing against each other, which in one context might be good, but in another is extremely, extremely harmful and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think what we see on TikTok is what I call the hyper-appropriation of soul work, right? Soul work being the sort of mass concentration of all things Black people create online. That's the memes, that's the gifts, that's the language we speak and how we communicate on Twitter, that's the jokes we pass on Facebook. Just everything that we create online is coming from sort of our joy and our creativity and our brilliance in the context of, These spaces were not essentially created for us. Twitter was not created for us. Instagram was not created for us. TikTok was not created for us. But we come to these platforms and we add value. And the value that we're bringing is is what I call the soul work that we're doing. Mm. And so I think that's why it felt so personal to the creators on TikTok because they're pouring so much of themselves into the platform and it's being so easily stolen by white creators or non-Black creators um, or or what have you. Honestly, I I think that soul work is the battle. It feels like one, that is what, that's what most folks are organizing around. I feel like even on on Twitch, you know, there are Twitch users when they're hosting their shows, they've been uh, experiencing what's being called, I think it's called race bombing. Um, Yeah where uh, you get a flood of kind of racist users and bots who jump into their Twitch stream and basically like post racist memes in the chat, just like, you know, generally terrorize people, make make it for where they basically have to shut down and start over. And so you kind of see it there too, basically like where we're being successful, where we're being, where we're having community, there is an attack. Um, where we're trying to provide that, like that soul work, you know? I feel like when it was Vine, we were talking about, yo, it was like, yo, this is happening. Pay attention, pay attention, pay attention. And now it's like, nah, we're not asking for attention more. We're, we're fighting back. Right. And I feel like 
that fight hasn't quite hit critical mass yet, but mm. it's interesting how it feels like it's coming. Like everyone is becoming a bit of a, so everyone has access to celebrity and influence, right? Absolutely. And so, you know, with, with these platforms, so now the stakes are higher with even smaller content if that makes any sense, which, mm -hmm. so like, even though I'm not like, you know, I don't have that many followers on Instagram. I, I am similar to Britney. I consume on TikTok, but I'm not that big. But you know, my first TikTok, if it is, if it goes viral, it could be something for me. Right. And so it just, it's interesting to me how that is adding people to the fight. And I'm curious to see like, can we hit the critical mass enough to actually like shape more of what these results are as opposed to just simply calling more attention to them? Right. One, one thing I also noticed in the reporting of the TikTok story was how like a lot of creators, and I don't know if this was as true early on in sort of our online days, but how a lot of these young kids are not afraid to speak up and say something and check white people and say, you know, you are taking our yeah. shit, but this is ours. Like, yeah, they're, they're out here. I think one of my favorite things, what TikTok has become, it's becoming a, a platform for accountability. People are mm. constantly checking other creators on TikTok saying, this you, you did this, didn't you say this? And I think that's important to have in the discussion as well, where it's like, you know, we're, we're not going to let y'all do this to us anymore because it's important that we have a stake in telling our story and saying, you know, these are our claims as well. As we say, it's, this fight over the soul work that we're putting into the into the universe and online is is important. And it's, it's a labor of love for a lot of people. And it's like, we can't be quiet about it anymore. We can't sit yeah. sit silent. It's Absolutely. funny because even like how TikTok actually works, like one of the things that actually got me to begin to pay attention to the platform was the fact that like TikTok at the end of every video, if you download it and you share it elsewhere, all over the video while you're watching it, yeah. the, the username for the creator, like the creator's username is there. Um, one of the things that was, I think, tough with Vine and also like, it can be really tough with Instagram um, is the fact that like, you know, somebody can come up with something, but there's no watermark. And TikTok mm. has a built in watermark for every frame. As long as you're watching it in the app or you, even if you download it, like the full video, which some of them you can and decide to distribute it someplace else like Twitter or Instagram, um, you're always going to know who made something. Whereas like I think back to, you know, on fleek Peaches Monroe, like mm. it, it took time for for like the connection mm -hmm. between mm -hmm. before Peaches Monroe became associated with that phrase, um, which, you know, obviously she's right at that by now. But with TikTok, it's like I think that accountability can exist because there's a little bit of like credit that's baked into the way that the app works. No, oh, completely. Yeah. Some of the OnlyFans, too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we can't talk about Black people's interaction with digital platforms or just being online without talking about Black Twitter. Black Twitter is like, it's a digital platform that launched to thousands of Black people, okay? <laughs> In some sort of way. Um, I mean, honestly, I can't think of very many Black people working in media period mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who don't have on some level Twitter to credit for their yeah. careers, even Absolutely. present company included. We, we couldn't have you on without discussing one of your most recent huge pieces for Wired. A People's History of Black Twitter. Chef's kiss on that title. Um, you really delivered with this piece. Like, it, it's kind of like part special report. Definitely an oral history. And it seems like you spoke to, like, countless, not just, like, Black Twitter mainstays, but also people who have been doing, like, real scholarly research about yeah, you know, Black yeah, folks yeah, in, yeah, in digital yeah. spaces. Um, and the thing that you really did with this that I think is so cool is that you put... Black Twitter into its proper context as far as history and like online history, I guess, is concerned, um, especially because like online history feels like this thing that like, like this ineffable thing that kind of like, you know, it when you see it or you kind of had to be there. I feel like with the Black Twitter piece, you actually like you were like, this is a record. Like we're putting this on wax. We're putting this on paper. How did this piece come to be? Like, why did you decide to write it? Not to be like hyperbolic in any way, but when I did this, I I knew I wanted it to be in like the Library of Congress. I was like, I need an official first document of mm. Black Twitter. Like it's it's something that's so fundamentally important to not just the internet, but Black culture at large. In yeah. the ways that you're saying, it's not only created careers, but it's driven culture in ways that sometimes we can't even see. 
Um, mm, it yeah. shaped so much of the last decade, right? But nobody had given it its proper due, I think, right? Mm. I didn't even realize there wasn't an actual official oral history of Black Twitter maybe until halfway through my reporting of it. Then I was like, oh shit, wow. I'm going to have the first one. <laughs> so it was... <laughs> like and I was <laughs> <laughs> I was like, now I have to, now I have to finish this. <laughs> so, um, yeah, man, but it's it kind of goes back to the thing with TikTok and what kind of drove me partly to report that story. I really wanted this to exist somewhere forever, and I re- it was really important for me to publish that in Wired because Wired is a sort of legacy publication, tech publication, you know, very mainstream. It's been around for mm-hmm. decades, but it's very important for me to put it in that space to say, "Hey, look what we've done," and see, you know, shine a light on all the sort of genius that we've created throughout the years. So I'm curious, like, what has it been like to receive how people are reacting to that, considering how much love you you know you clearly put into it. I was joking with a friend. I was like, the only like true measure of success for the story is that if Black Twitter actually roasts me when the story comes out. <laughs> That's how I know it's a successful story. Um, I didn't get, I mean, I, I do think the story was a, a, you know, a, a great success. I didn't get as roasted as much as I thought I would. But, you know, it's nostalgic for people to like look back on the early days of Twitter, to look back on how Black Lives Matter, the conversation, it was shaped so much on Black Twitter. Twitter, how through the Trump years, people were looking for joy and levity on the platform and, you know, coming together and communing in a way that they didn't before. And how Black Twitter has been so essential in almost everything that we've created online in the last 15 years. It, it, it would have been a disservice not to give it its, its shine. And you absolutely did. Something that I really liked about it is that, like, it made this online space very real. Like, I felt like my feelings about Black Twitter, not that I would ever call it that specifically like in my spirit like in my heart or my mind because for me i think a lot of times black twitter just is twitter you know i remember like that that liminal space for a few days between mike brown getting murdered in ferguson and it becoming this thing online but before Mm -hmm. national media had caught on i remember like i was living in an apartment then by myself i didn't have a tv and i was working in an office full of white people and i was all day long and all night long, just scrolling Twitter and just looking at people's like tweets, looking at people's videos, because that was the only place where I could actually get the information that I needed. And I think that, you know, obviously that is a more heartbreaking moment, but I think that Black Twitter has given, I think a lot of us like a, a sense of like, it's like a recognition. And I didn't realize that I had emotions around my experience on Twitter until I like was reading what you put together and realized that like, it was a real thing, I guess. Like you made it feel like a real thing. Yeah, it's so wild. It's so hard to really put a nose on it too, because it's this constantly evolving multiverse, right? It's yeah. it's so hard to say it's just this one or two or three different things because it really is all the things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, at the same it's, time, yeah. Really, right? It's <laughs> right. All these mm-hmm. things are happening at the same time. It's so interesting that you bring that up, Brittany. Like the sort of early days of Ferguson and how like it's been what seven years now and I look back on those first early days and it's like Jeez. black folks don't really call it black Twitter but it, it's really just Twitter to us because we just follow all black folks but yeah exactly <laughs> it really was our CNN right it, it yeah. was for yeah. us it was this for us bias we went to Twitter looking to see what was happening on the ground in Ferguson if you weren't there and it really was this sort of real time news right it shaped how we look at news how we understand news who we look to mm-hmm. for news mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, and I think you're right too. It gave a lot of people legitimacy, not that they were looking for it, but it gave a lot of people legitimacy in a way that they hadn't had before. It might be one of the most revolutionary platforms of our time. I mean, I completely agree. The other thing that's interesting about it is like, to me, it's like it became our place for news. But like, for me, it actually was the commentary. So right, like, right, 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 right. So like one of the most, one of the deepest experiences I had was uh, actually after the shootings at Mother Emanuel Church and at the kind of memorial service, Barack Obama sang Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I'll never forget, I was working in advertising still. At that point, I was like one of the only black people in the office. I think I might have been the only one that day. And everybody was kind of watching it. Everyone was sad. I was like, wait, do y'all recognize what is happening here? And like, I go on Twitter and, you know, the commentary was what I was feeling and no one around me else could access. And like, 
that was the piece for me that felt like CNN. I was getting the news, but I was also getting a particular type of commentary <laughs> right, that right, I right, needed right. that, to your point, like it, it felt very validating for like what I'm experiencing, but also all of these other Black people all around the world are right. experiencing as well. It's a very specific and unique digital marketplace in that I think there's a lot of ways to describe it, but the best way that I understand Black Twitter is that it's almost like being at a house party, but all the Black <laughs> folks always gather in the kitchen, right? And how then we share stories of what we're going through, what we heard on the news, why we don't want to take the vaccine. Like, it, everybody's just chiming in about this or that. And it's just this very singular space that doesn't exist anywhere else, even though there's all these things going on around it. You know, mm-hmm. it's how like we always gravitate towards the kitchen, no matter what house party we're at. And all the mm-hmm. sort of liveliest conversations are happening there. Because usually it's also so that's where to look at. <laughs> 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 the liquor or a plate, you try to get one or two and you get stuck. <laughs> but no, I mean, I'm glad that we're talking about this digital space like in, in, in like real world terms. Because like reading this series was like thumbing through a yearbook or you know, walking down memory lane, like in a very real way. And I say this as somebody who like, you know, I went to an HBCU and honestly, up until maybe I was like 25 or 26, most of the workplaces that I had been in after college, even at least Mm -hmm. half of them were black. Most of them were Mm -hmm. black. Um, And so I, you know, I've had plenty of like the water cooler experiences or like, you know, the HBCU being on the yard experiences with other Black people. Like, I understand those spaces, but also like it was a very real, real place. And and like you managed to cover that. Like you covered live tweeting scandal, old school Rihanna tweets back when Rihanna used to just get buck with people. Yeah, and tell Sierra, so good. good luck with bu- booking that stage you speak of, you know, and even and even like, you know, the more, the more, um, you know, serious stuff like Ferguson or like Barack Obama singing Amazing Grace at the funeral for, you know, the, the people who perished at, at Mother. Emmanuel Church were murdered, actually. I wonder, what's an aspect or era of Black Twitter that you wish you could have included, but you had to cut? Because it's clear from reading it, right? You talk to, like, dozens of people, and you probably had hours of interviews. I think one of the things that I wish we could have included more about was this sort of inter-community erasure that happens, right? The conflicts that we sometimes see between what I might call the dominant Black Twitter community and then, like, the queer Black community that's on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so, so I was talking to Raquel Willis, who's a trans rights activist, and she was saying how at the same time you have something like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor happening, you have people marching in the streets. You also have something like Tony McDade, a trans mm-hmm. man in Florida who was shot by the police. Yeah. Um, but nobody's talking about his story. But the dominant story on Black Twitter becomes, you know, marching for George Floyd, standing with Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, but nobody's talking about Tony McDade. And so I think that's something as a, we all are part of a larger community, but we come from different communities within the sort of diaspora of Blackness. And I think that's something I think we could talk about more and I think we should talk about more. And I think that's something I wish I would have highlighted a little bit more in the piece. I mean, we talk about it a little bit. But again, we should have given a little more space. Magazines are tricky, though. There is a lot of good stuff that I thought. Brandon Jenkins, who is, you know, also a podcast host, um, a former colleague of mine, you know, had all these great things to say about how, like, even though it's been 15 years, you know, since Twitter was launched, you know, Black Twitter has been around, you know, for X amount of years. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we're still very close to what's happening on the platform so that we can't quite understand its magnitude yet. Mm-hmm. And I think I tried to do that to the best of my ability, but I think in another like 10 years, we're really gonna understand the sort of essential and sort of critical impact that this platform has had, not only on us and in our lives and on our careers, but in the larger culture as well. So, you know, we're gonna kind of look back and like be able to kind of put things in context and hindsight, but, I'm here just looking forward, like for you as someone who has really committed yourself to being a, a little bit of an archivist, you know, like historian, like mm-hmm. kind of really mm-hmm. capturing where we are and what we do online. Like what's your greatest hope for the future of like Black folks' relationships to these digital platforms? 
This is something I was talking about with Professor Andre Brock, who um, teaches at Georgia Tech when he was, you know, in the oral, oral history. And, you know, he studied these platforms and studied Black Twitter for a while now. He was saying how, like, you know, we come to these spaces that weren't intended for us, but we somehow always make them our own. We always turn them into a port space. We always turn them into a stoop. We always turn them into the kitchen, right? And we come on them and we signify and we, we're ourselves. And, you know, we do what we naturally do. We commune. And we pour love on each other. And honestly, I think we'll continue to do that until the balance of power shifts where we actually have power to create sustainable Black platforms for us. I think that's really the hard part. It's like we don't yet have the power, even though we bring power to these platforms, but we don't have the sort of core power to say, hey, let's create our own space and make it our own. But I will say there's a a bit of joy in being Black in public in front of all these white people and not giving a fuck what they think, right? There's something like, there's something so so joyful and radical and revolutionary about that that I kind of love where it's like, we're doing this over here in front of you and you can't be a part of this. Like, I kind of love that. I you can't sit I here. Love I love it. it. That's why I can't leave. I try to leave often, and I cannot. Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, of course. Yes. Thank you for for having me. Seriously, it's been a pleasure. Uh, so tell tell folks like you know where where do they need to look for you when they when they want to see the new hotness that's going to drop? Where do they need to go? I don't know, man. I, I, it's so weird what I'm about to say where I'm like, I know I work for a tech and culture magazine. I know everything I write about is like online culture, but I'm going to be like, stay offline. <laughs> Not to like be that guy, but like Michaela Cole, her speech resonated with mm, me so much from the Emmys. Oh my God. From yes. the Emmys when she was saying, you know, as a creative, not only write the stories that, you know, scare you, but like, Listen to the silence. Get offline and create. It's okay to disappear. Don't You don't need to be validated by your last tweet or your last Instagram post or your last TikTok. It's okay mm. to just, like, go outside and, like, breathe. Don't You don't need to be online constantly doing these things. Um, but, I mean, you can find me on Twitter, I guess. But <laughs> you can find me in the streets. How about that? <laughs> All right. I'm going to the streets. The streets are calling my name. The streets are calling me. I I love that Michaela Cole quote, but I did not share it because I knew my ass was still going to be online because I just knew it. I knew it. That's why I was like, I'm not even going to be sharing it and acting like that would be a fake bitch moment for me. (laughs) Thank you guys so much. Yeah, thank you. Seriously. Thank you. For Colored Nerd was created by me, Brittany Luce, and Eric Evans. It's supported by a production team at Stitcher, including producers Alexis Williams, Willis Arnold, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Casey Holford is our technical director, and Peter Clowney is head of content. Our theme music is by Willie Green. And special thanks this week to producer Chantel Holder for her work on this episode. Thank you so much, Chantel. Love hearing from listeners. So please connect with us and tell us what you thought about this episode. Have you been creeping on OnlyFans? Do you have a TikTok? How do you feel about Black Twitter? Let us know. We want to hear from you. And you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at 4 Nerds. And never miss an episode by following us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen. See you next week. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 